Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners, Design for Culture. Today, I am joined by Chris Collins, and our subject is A Museum is a Business. Chris, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So to get started, for people who don't know you, could you tell our dear listener who you are and what you do? Certainly. My name is Chris Collins. I'm the managing director of the Cultural Projects Group at MGAC. We are an owner's representative and project management firm. So basically, when people have a business imperative, they have to build something, design and build something, we help them manage that process. And specifically, we work on clients that have museums, public art projects, nonprofits, and foreign embassies in my group. And foreign embassies? Yes. Yeah, U.S. companies... I'm sorry, foreign countries that have embassies or diplomatic missions here in the U.S., we work with them too. Ah, got it. Okay. And you, you're, of course, from MGAC. So does MGAC like officially stand for something or is the whole name now just MGAC? Great question. It was founded in 1996 by Mark G. Anderson. It stands for Mark G. Anderson Consultants. And we've been around for that long. I do the math, 27 years. Mm-hmm. And it's really, he wanted it to be known more for MGAC rather than his name on it because it's much more than him. And it's about the people that we have in the company. Got it. Okay. Moving our client's missions forward. I, coming from a firm called C and G Partners, I can totally understand that. And you described what you do as being a owner's representation group and one other thing. What was the, or what are the other things that you do? Or how do, how else do people describe you? Project manager, people have, whether it's a $1 million project or $300 million project or more, they need someone to manage that process of finding the right consultants and contractors, designers. Sometimes we handle the move, manage a plan for that. We manage procurement, planning and procurement of anything, the technology in a building. Mm -hmm. And we have certainly many market sectors. We do have a group that does nothing but data centers. We do hotels corporate office work, institutional education, and so forth. I got it. And if I remember correctly, MGAC over the years has grown to not only be in various places in the U.S., but outside of the U.S. as well. That's correct. We now are in the U.K. We have 80 employees there and about 160 here in the U.S. I've been with the firm for 23 years, and it's been quite a career. Doing project work is really satisfying to me, and my favorite uh, of, of many years being here is working with cultural clients. I always say it's because they have, I call them projects of the heart. It's different than a building development or a hotel where the driver of it is more profit-based. And, and as people who build museums, they do it because they really care about something deeply within themselves and it's a passion for them. Yeah, I would agree with that. Absolutely. Which leads me to my favorite side question. So how did you get in to this business? Usually the answer is I meant to do this and then I went sideways. That's true with most people I interview and it's a good sideways, but how yeah. did you get into this business? Did you go to school to become an owner's representative for cultural clients or yes. something else? Uh, good question. I went to school for architecture and after I got my bachelor's degree, I actually built houses for a couple of years, custom homes to understand how things go to better, get to go together. And then they got my license 
in the process of working as a young architect, I saw owner's representatives representing clients where they would send a consultant to go sit in a meeting and give a what for to the architect when he was misbehaving, keep things in the rails. And I thought to myself, wow, that's a really interesting job. And then in the 90s, I had an opportunity to go work for a developer and didn't look back. And then I also went back and got an MBA at night in my spare time, which was fantastic training. I think everyone in the design business should have the opportunity if they're interested in business. It's a nice compliment. Wow, that's my my co-founder of my firm, the firm that I have today, did the same thing. He was also a designer and he did an MBA at night in his spare time. See? And yeah, no, it was great. He he had been in the business longer than me and so he taught me a whole lot about 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 business actually, which is terrific. It, because you're doing it in your spare time, it depends on how much time you have to spare. In his case, I think it took him more than six years to do it. Did you finish it up right right quick or did it take you yeah, a while to get that? A little over two years and I didn't watch any TV at night, that's for sure. We're talking today about the simple idea, which I think is terrific. A museum is a business. What inspired you to come up with this topic? Why why would you like people to hear about this topic? And then we'll jump right into it. Sure. It's obvious, right? And it's and it's funny, we were talking about this earlier, but the business has income, it has costs, and you have to balance those things out on an annual basis. You have to, you don't really necessarily have stockholders, but most museums are a nonprofit. If you're, and I'm going to, I'm going to talk about museums today outside of the realm of large institutions, such as the Smithsonian, because I think mm -hmm. that's a whole nother animal. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about more small independent Museums that could spend, like I said, anywhere from a million to $500 million on building just the project, building the building. And I see clients regularly, I'm sure you do too, who are so focused on the design and what the building is going to look like. And the ones who are really successful really understand the importance of the operational budgets, what it's going to cost to maintain and operate the, the museum, what kind of staff they're going to have, and when we can get organizations to really focus on kind of the back of house functionality of the buildings, I think they're setting themselves up for a very successful operation because then it's it, then the design is based on a real program and a basis of design for the museum, not just what it looks like, but how it's going to operate and what the expected revenue will be. Okay. I completely agree. And I'm fascinated by, this, by the subject. So let's just get right into this. As always, I know the list but I don't know that much more. My guest is the expert. So talking today about a museum is a business. And point number one is just that. A museum is a business. That's our lead point for discussion. So tell me more about, about that point. Like, why do we need to state it? I think it's interesting to say that out loud because indeed it is a business. A museum is a business. And how is a museum a business? Let's start at the, the most basic, because I think a lot of folks might not think that it is actually, or it's something other than a business. Say how you think about it with your, with that MBA of yours. <laughs> the, from the basics of a business has to have money in order to pay their employees, to make investments in their facility, to, to reach out and market themselves. Just like any other product or a service business, it has to have income to pay its people, otherwise it will implode. And I think we've seen some of that in the last couple of years. Uh, we've seen some big museums, you know, one here in Washington, D.C., close their door because their endowment was being gobbled up. And they saw that over time, 
the operation uh, of their museum wasn't going to be sustainable. So I think sustainability is not just an environmental uh, issue. It's one of financial health and responsibility too. Um, it, museums are obviously different because they're ordinarily a nonprofit. So the structure of that is is unique because you have board members who may or may not be donors, but they're not shareholders. So they haven't invested millions into that business. There's other ways to get that. And we'll talk about that as well. So one thing you said just a moment ago, like any product or like any business, a museum, mm -hmm. which is a business, has to have income or it will implode. So let's just define income because I think a lot of folks, a lot of listeners might not think about the revenue that a museum makes as income because they're not selling a product and receiving money that has a profit. They're not selling iPhones and yeah. getting more than they spend on it because income is other things, including donations, et cetera. How would you define income so that people understand what you mean? Simple revenue, right? You have money coming in the door and money going out the door on an annual basis. If you have that balance and you have some money left over in the bank, that's a good thing. And uh, it's interesting, my side note, my daughter is going through a degree program. It's really a business program for the arts. It's an arts management degree. And she called me up in her sophomore year. She's, dad, I just had this case study. And she went on about this whole thing where they're studying about a museum that went underwater and um, they had to close their doors because they ran out of money and people weren't coming and they couldn't afford to pay a lease on the building. And that was the end of it. And it was a horrible stand on the institution and had to go into receivership. So those kinds of things are fascinating to me because I think we see nonprofits, a lot of times the people who are leading them are very focused on the mission of that organization. And the ones who are sustainable and successful understand that they have to be, they have to have a profit so they can keep their doors open. Now, as far as revenue goes, they, most of them have about a third of their annual operating budget has to come from either donations or an endowment, something like that where they have a cushion to operate. Uh, very different than if you wanted to open up John's sneaker company, right? If you would have an idea, you could borrow money against an asset. Banks like to loan money based on what they think would be a good idea or land. And museums just don't ordinarily have that type of structure where they can get into, go get a loan and think about that because museums are they have to rely on donors. Yeah, I think we're going to talk about that routes to to finance, traditional and non-traditional and museum routes to finance in just a minute, but that's great. Number two, this is also pretty interesting to me because both you and I have been in the business for a little while and we've seen, well, we've seen that this is true. So number two is like any product, a museum succeeds if there is a need for it. Say more about that. What do you mean by success and what do you mean by need? So there are companies that actually perform market analysis and visitation studies to really look at what the idea is for the museum, what market they're going to serve, and do a prediction based on that information and comparables to tell a prospective museum developer how many people are going to walk through the door on an annual basis. That's a really compelling thing to think that there are experts out there who could do this and setting aside what's happened in COVID, I think that becomes the basis for the operational model, the operational budget, things like that. Just like there's a need for restaurants to serve food or conference centers to exist. 
and what size of what size groups would come and hold an event in a space that impacts the development of a design of the building and the museum that would support the the business case as well. So there's not only you mentioned a few things there, not only how many sort of visitors it would have that would walk in the door, but other kinds of users or people who would pay for something. That might mean people who would go to the restaurant that's in the museum, or if you're going to rent out a certain portion of it, if you happen to have the Temple of Dendur and everybody would like to have their event at the Temple of Dendur, then how many people might that be and how many days per week and how much will it cost them to operate, all that stuff. And that's, that is what your feasibility study, your financial feasibility study would include all of that. Is that right? Exactly. And also they'll study where the income will come from. So ordinarily it's tickets, it's special events or rentals, gift shop type of things, and then also donors or donations. So those are generally the three buckets. And again, I'm not an expert in this. There are people who are. I guess the point there is that people who think that they're going to build a museum and people will come just because it's a good idea could be sadly mistaken when they might not have that many people, people who walk in the door. Okay, so this point number two, like any product a museum succeeds if there's a need for it as a replacement for what you might think otherwise, which is build it and they will come. Exactly. Right? That that build it and they will come is not any of your points today. <laughs> no, right? it's scientific analysis has a place in planning for a museum. Right. The build, do not build it because they may not come. First, do your feasibility <laughs> studies. And I think that relates to your third point here, which is number three. It's a long one, but I think it's important. Museum founders are often successful business people, but that experience might not necessarily be relatable to museums, which is interesting. And other, I guess you're saying museums just run fundamentally differently in terms in business terms than other businesses. Right. right? And, and my expertise and background is more in the development and construction or renovation of buildings and museums. So I'll probably talk more about that rather than the operations. When founders or people who have an idea to build a museum, and let's say you go through and have a feasibility study for understanding the success of that, we just, we end up with our private museum clients. Often they come from academia or they might've started a business. It's completely different. And they're like, let's build a museum. And that's part of their metric and their imperative, right? They have a business imperative. So I think we end up working with consultants and other people to support that activity of development to actually hire out the right team and manage that process. And which really leads us to the idea of within a business, when you're going to start a business, you would develop a plan, right? You have a business plan. Yeah, you would. And it just, it seems like what you were saying before about the, about the feasibility study is the equivalent of if you were starting a business, you were saying before a sneaker shop or a sneaker right. store or whatever it might right. be, you would do some kind of market research to find out, is there a need for more sneakers of this type and for whom and who's going to buy them? And I guess the same thing is true. Once you've determined, yes, there is, there would be a need, this can be supported, then you have to start actually creating your business plan. And I guess that might be different consultants than your feasibility study folks, or could be possibly the same consultant. What's your take on that? The feasibility study is really you're developing the business plan and you're getting an outside view on will people come? What's the expected revenue? How much is it going to cost to actually build this? Where will it go? How long will it take to build, design and build, and, and, and also to develop a work plan that really pulls all that together 
we're a big proponent of having a written work plan before any design happens because it really describes what the base needs are. And when people have that in writing before they embark on a journey of developing something, it's always something you can go back to and say, no, this is what we agreed to as the basis of the design and the program of what we're doing. Minor adjustments are usual and expected, but if the if you set a target in the very beginning in your work plan and your feasibility study, and then you veer off of that, then you it's pretty easy to know what happened. And you hear many, many stories of museums that go off the rails because they didn't really have a, a strong budget or an idea of what it was going to take. And earlier you said one of the reasons that you're in the business is that you think of the part that you sit over at your firm, the cultural projects, they're mm-hmm. projects of the heart instead of primarily profit-driven. But we're talking about the fact that a museum is a business. Do you find that there is resistance with the museum founders that you're working with to think about it both ways? That they, Do they ever not want to think about it as a business because they did their business and now they want to do this other thing and they don't want to think about it that way? Not is at it all. It's really easy to get them to say, my project of the heart needs a feasibility study. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we have clients actually who understand, and that's why they want to hire advocates for them because they've never done it before, right? So if you are, if you know what you don't know and you hire people who have done it before and listen to them and work with them to collaborate, then I think that's the best ideal situation for a museum developer who might not have done this before. So the, it's almost like the people who are the most successful in business before would be the most likely to do well in museums because they would know hire the experts, get the people who know, like they would do in the business before. They would, there'd be aspects of their business they wouldn't know. And so I'm expanding into Asia. I better hire someone who knows how to do that. And they're accustomed to doing that. So right. they call up, they call up you all and they get going. That's it. Okay. Little halftime show. Let me do a quick station identification. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners Design for Culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can write a review in Apple Podcasts, or you can just tell a friend. And thank you thousand times over for helping to spread the word about making the museum. Now, back to the show. We are talking with Chris Collins about the fact that a museum is a business. And we've got seven points today. We've done the first three. Next up is number four. The routes for financing and financial management are different than in other businesses. Say more about that. What are the routes in other businesses and what are the routes for museums? Sure. And I think this is context of developing a museum. There's an initial cost, a capital cost to design and build, to develop the museum and get the doors open. And for sakes of discussion, let's say that's a $50 million endeavor and it might take five years to do. They may have some seed money. They may have some initial donors that have given maybe 20% of that. That's usually not enough. And I think the golden, or not the golden rule, but the general rule in a developing business is if you have about 75% of the project costs in hand to do the work, then you can usually go get a loan to help bridge for the rest of the time you're fundraising. And that doesn't mean that you're going to need to, you're not going to spend 75% of the project early on. And there's usually a point where 
you have to have confidence that you are going to be able to raise the balance of the money so you can convince whether it's a landlord or someone who's doing a land lease, convince them that you're not going to build a building and get halfway done and run out of money. Developers, landlords, all that. They want to make sure that you have a strong financial plan for that. And bankers won't give you a loan for 80% of the building value like they would. Most office buildings have 80 to 90%. 80 to 90% of the building's value is alone using other people's money, right? So museums just don't have that model. Getting money from wealthy individuals or government grants or corporate donations is a whole nother thing. So we find ourselves working very closely with those people who have to do that work. And God love them because it's hard. So point number five, we've got three points left. Museum buildings are twice as expensive as other buildings. I don't even have to ask about that one. That's pretty clear. But is that right? What is the, put some numbers behind that or what's your experience been there? Yes, we actually did a study in 2021. We need to re-update that. And we really took a look at what people were spending on museums because we found in the marketplace, if you do a Google search for what should a museum cost, one of the answers you got back was written about 10 years ago by, I think, an academic said, oh, if you spend about $350 a square foot for a museum, that should be a fine budget. And that's just wrong. So we actually went out to our friends and colleagues in the industry and said, okay, you just opened a museum. Let's talk about how much you spent. We looked at large, medium, and small museums. Uh, we looked at the uh, at experience-based museums, so not art museums, but experience-based museums. Mm -hmm. And first of all, the buildings itself, and this is as of two years ago, a new construction budget just to build the buildings was about $860 a square foot. Uh, and that was excluding site improvements. So that's a you're building a new museum. That's about how much you're going to spend on just the buildings. That's not the architect. It's not the exhibit designer. It's not the exhibits, not the furniture, just the building. Office buildings are sometimes half of that cost. You can mm -hmm. spend more than that, but in, in for Washington, D.C., for instance, you're, you can build a core base building, much less money. And it, it's really just because of the special, special natures of museums, the type of systems that they have to have and the space required, the infrastructure for exhibit lighting and thematic areas, HVAC specialized, the security requirements, equipment, things like that. So that's really, they're much more expensive. So what we try and do early on is have a very thorough independent view of what it will likely cost a museum developer to actually build it and having it sounds really simple of course why wouldn't you have a target budget that is educated and based on comparables but many people they'll just start off and say we're going to spend x dollars a square foot and we see this again we've inherited projects from other groups that are part way into it and they didn't really think about 20% of the cost of a project that nobody said, oh, what about all the artifacts we're going to have to buy or the media or the developing of the media or, you know, all of the things that go into it. So we have a very thorough process where we go and look into all the different parts of a budget. It's about a 90 line item budget. We look at where they could spend money, look at all the soft costs, subconsultants as one of my client critics called it consultants watching the consultants, which was a joke, but 
<laughs> but think about it. How many subconsultants does CNG hire to do a large museum project? There's quite a few people involved, right? That's right. Yeah. No, it really is a cast of hundreds minimum. More likely, it's sure. a cast of thousands if you're doing any kind of substantial GC work. The right. museum you just mentioned in DC that, that failed financially recently is so large that I'm quite sure that was literally a cast of thousands that were building it. It's being redeveloped by a different owner now, and there's a cast of thousands again working on that building. I, the consultants watching the consultants, I kind of like that. I want to ask a quick question. You've used a phrase a couple of times I've never heard before, but I think it's I'm going to adopt it, which is museum developer, which sounds like it's a little bit like a real estate term saying a real yeah. estate developer. And then you would have a museum developer. Is that the term of art that you would use to refer to any entity that wishes to develop a museum? Because I think that's, I've never really thought about it that way. And I think that's helpful. Yeah, it, you have to buy into the, to the premise that a museum is a business. So we talked about the feasibility study. And the feasibility study also takes into consideration an actual site, right? You can't establish a target budget for a museum without actually having a piece of ground or a building that you're going to put that museum into. So that's important. So having, you got to put a check on that. You have to have a site, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And really checking against what people are paying and what people are spending money on in a project, I think is also very important. That's called a term called benchmarking. And we also like to do that as well, right? They're very important, especially in the last three years, the costs for everything have gone up considerably and construction is certainly on the list there as well. Um, what do you, I want to just interrupt, what do you find in terms of cost increases over the last three years? It used to be X, now it's Y. Yes. Yeah, well, typically we would predict escalation in our budgets of 3% per year up until 2019, and that was fine, right? And we've been tracking 9 to 11% every year in 2020, 21, 22 was around, I think, 7 or 8% in that range for construction costs. So yeah, those are substantial. They are, they really are. And I can agree with that. We're working right now with a major university system that used to mandate 3% escalation. Escalation for listeners, by the way, is an amount you put into your budgets to say, we're budgeting it right now, but for every year that the project is going to go on before you actually start building it, you need to add a little bit to take into account inflation, et cetera, rising costs, it's escalation. It's not escalating something to your manager, although sometimes it's both. And yeah, for this large university system that we're talking to, they used to have 3% as their escalation, and now they've mandated it's always 6% now. That's mandatory for all projects. Okay. So yeah. That's good. For sure. Yeah, 9 to, yeah. But it also sounds like you're saying, I'm always interested in this, you've been tracking 9 to 11% during the pandemic, and it's coming down most recently to 7 or 8%. So maybe it's coming Lightning down out. a little bit. Lightning That's out. our hope. Yeah. So- Stay tuned there. But anyway, I guess the major okay. point is you have to plan for inflation. And um, that's a classic example of budget trouble, not planning for inflation. Not planning for inflation and also not planning for what you really could spend money on and, and a long list of consultants. So anyway, having an independent party take a look at that is always helpful. One of the things we joke about, I'm an architect so I can make fun of architects, is something I, a general rule is never let the architect be in charge of the budget. And I think having a conscience about uh, the budget different than the person who's driving the idea forward is good. I found this out myself when I was, I'm an architect by training, I was doing my own house and I would hope that the budget would be fine when I was making decisions that I knew the decision was driving up the cost for something. <laughs> but because 
I was only one person and not being checked too often by my lovely wife. It, it did end up costing us more in the end because I wanted what I wanted. And at the end of the day, that's okay if you know you can afford it. But that's how people get themselves in trouble. <laughs> Man, so well. you can joke about that because you're an architect. Was there a lot of joking about that in your family when that occurred? No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to take that conversation any further. <laughs> okay. Well, that, no, I'm still married, though, after 30 Close the door on so that entire good. conversation. Let the record show that we did not discuss that any further. Okay. Should we talk about point number six? Absolutely. All right. Point number six. We've got six and seven left. Do a feasibility study. I think we talked about that a little bit more earlier. We did talk about that a little bit earlier. Is there anything more that you'd like to say about that? That seems like we covered it pretty yeah, well I earlier. We, I think we covered it. We covered it. We were yeah. jumping. We jumped ahead and we did it. Okay. And yeah. then number seven, the last point is develop a work plan. You talked about work plan briefly before, and that's scope, budget, and schedule. Can you flesh that out for our listeners? Absolutely. So when you're doing a feasibility study, you're it's really you're setting goals, right? So what is your mission? Who's your target audience? What are your interpretive planning goals? Big picture, right? When you have those things. Yeah, then you develop a program of your space needs, right? Which is a written design vision and a scope and extent of the project. So that could be, you think it's going to be a 50,000 square foot building and you're going to have 18,000 square feet of exhibits, 10,000 square feet for back of house areas and office space, things like that written down. So that's the program mm-hmm. or the scope. And then the target budget is what we talked about a minute ago is developing what you really think an achievable budget is. So you're using real data, you're doing comparables, and you're looking at realistically what you're going to spend. And then you look at the schedule. How long is it going to take to go through this? And you should develop a very realistic schedule that shows all the different phases of design, what the procurement, how long the procurement's going to be. And you're also, let's assume you're leasing a property or it's a land lease or gifted when you're going to mobilize and start construction and lay out that schedule, which also tying budget and schedule together, obviously a scope, budget and schedule go together. The cash flow of when you're going to spend that money along a timeline is also critical to understand and that all goes together. So that's really the basics of the work plan. We went through, through this last year with a new project that we're doing uh, down in Florida, and they have a board of 30 people. And we worked very closely with a small subcommittee to go through establishment of all these three things, the program scope, a detailed budget, a realistic schedule for the site, sat down before anybody really started designing anything and said, here's what this is going to cost. Here's how long it could be. Here's the cash flow. And I think they really appreciated having that exercise to go through before they started off because that really helps set their expectations. And that's why you have a work plan before you start design. A lot of people don't do it. So that's when you're budgeting without knowing what you're going to build because you all have knowledge about your benchmarks, your comparables, what it will cost per square foot and things like that. So it's right. not that you're budgeting. You would like to have attention-getting architecture that's visible from the highway and it'll do this and it'll do that. And there's a big dome and there's a swoopy thing and a pointy yep. thing. And that's right. going to cost this. You don't know that yet. You're just saying museums that are like the kind of thing that you're doing cost this much. And we happen to know that generally speaking. Yes, exactly. And I think a good project manager would be able to help a client establish a reasonable target budget. Someone who has champagne taste on a Budweiser budget 
somebody needs to tell them, hey, let's aim a little bit higher or go raise some more money. And I think that's where people get themselves into trouble. Sometimes they set too low of a target budget on a cost per square foot basis, and they're fooled into thinking they can afford to build their uh, bigger building. And then when the, the drawings are done and the prices come in and it's more expensive, they're surprised. That's a bad day. So you can be there to say, one of our points earlier was museums cost twice as much as other kinds of buildings. Here are the comparables. Here are the benchmarks. Here, here it is in black and white. Yeah. Don't underestimate it. Don't be like Chris was when he worked on building his own house. My kitchen was fabulous. I'm sure it's fabulous. <laughs> yeah, it uh, darn well better be. <laughs> no, I'm sure it is. It was no? fine. I sold I'm the house sure. already, so what are you going to do? Oh, okay. There you go. Okay. That's, that goes right back to a museum as a business. You already sold your house. I'm a prolific project guy. I continue to do things just for fun. Okay. That's awesome. Okay. Let's see. Let's recap our list for today. The topic was a museum is a business. And point number one is just that. A museum is a business. Point number two, test me on this. Like any product, a museum succeeds if there's a need for it. Number three, museum founders are often successful business people, but will their experience be relatable to museums? Number four, the routes for financing are different than other businesses. Number five, building museums cost twice as much as building other kinds of, of buildings. Number six, do a feasibility study. And number seven, develop a work plan for scope, budget, and schedule before you actually have a design. It can be done. That's a great recipe. Points one through seven. Did I, did I get them all? You got it. Okay. I got it. Wow. That was super. I learned a lot of things that I didn't know just now. That's terrific. Chris, it has been great to have you on the show. This is very interesting uh, to be on it. I appreciate the conversation as always. And I do actually have a companion article on this if uh, I can send that to you. It's two years old now. Yeah. But, uh, but it, is this it, from uh, the, the benchmarking that you did? Yes. And it was Great. published in IAMFA magazine, Papyrus. Excellent. Yeah. If you send me that link, we can put it in the show notes along with other things. So speaking of that, if listeners would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Email or website? Sure. My email is kris.collins, C-O-L-I-N-S, at mgac.com. You can find us on the website. Terrific. That's awesome. Okay. I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you would like to get in touch with me or you have an idea for the show, go to makingthemuseum.com, hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger, always looking out for new links or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. And that is it for this episode. By the way, did you know this podcast has an older sister? It's a very short newsletter every weekday under the same name. One quick piece of inspiration each day for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros. You can subscribe at makingthemuseum.com. Big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.